You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Michelle, it's so good to be recording with you again. Feels like it's been a while. <laughs> it, it does, Mel, but you know, yes, it is super, super good. And as always, dear listeners, I'm glad this is a cracker. This is a good one. And we really, really have lots of information, but also calls to action for women in the workplace, but of course, for leaders in the workplace today. About, ta-da, Mel. Everyday sexism and benevolent bias. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, we got ourselves a bit worked up talking about something related to this right before we hit record. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to seeing where this one goes. There'll be a fair bit of energy coming through your (laughs) headphones, dear listeners. Yeah. Well, kick us off, Michelle. Help us understand high level, everyday sexism, benevolent bias. What do we really mean by that? Okay. So everyday sexism is, let's roll back to, you know, when I started work 1,047 years ago, but no, it wasn't that long, listeners. But when I first started work, a lot of behaviours were okay, a lot of sexist behaviours that were very overt and very in your face. Touching boobs, touching bottoms, sexist remarks, what have you. A lot of that behaviour has been either eliminated or it's just not okay. And we have systems and processes, codes of conduct, expected ways of behaving, values that say actually it's it's not okay, notwithstanding that it still happens. But what we're talking about, everyday sexism is the subtle and often overlooked forms of sexism that occur in our day-to-day lives. And listeners, they're they're probably those things in the moment you might go, "Mm, what was that? And then you reflect as you walk away from the matter at hand, or you might be thinking that night, hang on a minute, that wasn't cool. That really wasn't cool. But in the moment, it felt little and not quite right, but not big enough to call out. And some of these things we call microaggressions, but we're going to go into some of the details, some of what that looks like, sounds like, and of course, feels like. So that's everyday sexism, those really subtle forms of sexism. And then benevolent bias is, again, benevolent. So I'm a a kind and benevolent person. I'm looking after you. But in a patronising, patriarchal way. So benevolent gender bias is that bias where it's well-intended, well-meaning, but it's biased nonetheless. And it is sometimes very difficult to call out because it is well-meaning and well-intended. But of course, it is uninformed or ill-informed and holds women back. They're the two things that we're going to talk about today. I have to say it's hard for me to hear well-meaning because... I know. (laughs) So talk about some examples around this and what these things look like. I'm going to start with this sort of benevolent pieces here. So benevolent bias, what can it look like in a belief? It can be something like the belief that women are always nurturing Mm. or always should be nurturing. And in practice can look like women being 
praised for being nurturing. And so this is where it can seem like perhaps it's even a compliment in the moment, but the at the root of it is an incredibly biased patriarchal belief. Yeah. And I want to build on that, Mel, by saying every single one of us has a mindset about women and men, about work, about careers, about leadership and about power and who owns some of those things. And in society, unchecked mindsets about the role of women in workplaces, unchecked mindsets about the role of women in society can lead to actions or inaction and then those actions have consequences. So an example of that benevolent bias that you've just described, hey, isn't Michelle such a wonderful mother? Isn't she a wonderful, caring, kind, compassionate mum? She's got two kids. Isn't that wonderful? But what that might lead to, how benevolent bias plays out and has an impact for me is what we won't do is offer Michelle that big job because that would be too hard for her because she's got those responsibilities with her kids. Or it might be, you know, we're not going to send Michelle to the conference in San Francisco this year because, gee whiz, that'll be really hard for her. And we want to be caring for, make sure that we're, we're looking after her ability to care for her kids. So we won't send her away. Now, of course, I get it that you say you're infuriated by well many because I would have been infuriated too. And I don't know if that happened to me. I suspect perhaps it did. But of course, sometimes we don't see that. We don't see that the fact that we've missed out on an opportunity because someone's made a decision on our behalf. Well-meaning, but it is a mindset that I'm responsible for caring for. And whether it's children, whether it's furry children, whether it's older people, whether it's folks that need us, that there's an assumption that as a woman, I'm going to be that primary carer and have those primary responsibilities. And I couldn't possibly do my job very well. That's benevolent bias. And it has consequences because if I don't get exposure to conferences and meetings and stretch jobs or assignments, of course, my career isn't going to accelerate as fast as, oh, someone who doesn't have to worry about caring and being nurturing and kind. So we have this assumption that the guy, so my male counterpart, well, you've got a wife at home and she can look after the kids. So we're going to send Bill. We're going to send Bill across to San Francisco because he's got Mel at home looking after the dogs and the cats and the animals and the, you know, whoever else needs caring for. So it's cool. We'll send Bill. Now the reality is Bill might be going, oh, shoot. I don't want to go. I don't want to be away from my family or I don't want to, I've got responsibilities. Send Michelle. Oh no, we can't do that. So this is where benevolent bias can play it. That's a very overt example. Yeah. And I want to say that it doesn't even have to have like children involved in the picture. I was reading a story from a woman who was talking about how she realized what was happening in her own work experience. She was a woman working in IT and she got brought in as some type of manager. And 
there was this constant sort of praise happening. Like, we're so glad to have someone with high emotional intelligence mm -hmm. and good communication here. It's just great to have you be part of our team because you're bringing all of these soft skills that are so great to the team, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so she was given all of these people management duties. Mm -hmm. But over time, she realized she wasn't given the authority to really enforce anything. And she wasn't being given any kind of technical work or responsibilities. Yeah. And that was part of what was undermining her authority in the eyes of the people that were on the team. And she realized that it just wasn't going to work because there was this complete benevolent sort of bias mm. set up as an obstacle that prevented them from seeing her as the total technical professional that she was. Mm, mm. And I'm going to give you another example, which long-time listeners, you'll know that I am a sports nerd. In fact, I'm not a nerd because I can't name anyone, but I love sport and I always have done. But you know what? Sport is also part of my strategic toolkit. I've used sport in the business context for decades as a way of having conversations, building that amazing trilogy, know, respect, trust, to build relationships and establish my cred. But benevolent bias has meant that I have been locked out of certain environments where I could grow my business. The box at the football. There is a lot of business done at football grounds, on golf courses, in lots of those kind of environments where it's assumed that there'll be a lot of blokes and only the blokes will want to go, the guys will want to go. And I am very sporty and like I'll turn up to a football match at any point, at any time. And you put me in a corporate box with my clients and I'm on fire, right? This is a really good example, but I'm not invited. I am these days because I've made it very well known that I want to be there. But in days gone by, women not just me, but other women, it would be assumed, well, we won't invite Mel and Michelle and Joanne and Laura to the football box because they won't like that. But guess what gets done in the football box? Business. Guess what also happens in the box? You establish networks. You also have exposure to decision-making and decision-makers, which, as we know, is a really important part of developing business-critical skills. So, Benevolent biases, they won't want to go anyway. They, you know, they won't love that. Means that we're locked out of opportunities to expand our business critical skills, our networks and networking. So it plays out in all sorts of different ways. And my call to action for leaders here is whenever you make a decision, well-meaning, check your bias. So I want you to check, would I make this decision about who's at the table, in the box, on the plane, whatever it may be, would I make the same decision if this was a man? Mm. And you've got to run a gender lens over it. Totally. I want to drop another example here that I have seen in men and women. That is to say, I've seen men and women both hold this belief and not recognize it as bias. Okay. That is men and women are different and complementary. Mm. 
Men and women are different and complementary. It sounds kind of innocuous, but there's a lot of layer to it that puts assumptions on things like inherent heterosexuality, for example. I'm always very, very cautious of any binary description around gender and what goes mm. with your assigned gender. So whilst I'm no expert on the gender spectrum, I will absolutely say this whole business of female leadership and male leadership, in my opinion, is complete and utter bullshit. Yeah, yeah, little vomit sound. And this is part of these long-held beliefs. Now, there are certainly physical and biological differences between a whole range of people. So I'm not going to get into that. But the reality is when I front up as a leader, I'm fronting up, bringing all of my emotional intelligence, my business intelligence, and my social intelligence. Listen, that might be a tiny wee little plug for my book that's coming out next year. Very subtle there. So I'm bringing all of that. And there is no difference between someone like me and someone of another gender or somewhere on the gender spectrum who's done exactly the same kind of professional and personal development as me. My gender is irrelevant to the way I lead. Yep. My lived experience is really relevant. The investment I've made in my development is really relevant. The investment others have made in my development is really relevant. It's just, but my gender has zero to do with it. And I really want to just bust that myth that there is female leadership and male leadership. There is not. There is bias and there are biased expectations, which we have all been marinating in since birth. And going back to the binary, both men and women, men are told to behave in a certain way from the outset of their lives. And it's very hard to break that some of those stereotypes. And those stereotypes create toxic masculinity, which is creates very bad outcomes for a whole lot of people. And gender stereotypes associated with women also create very bad outcomes. They create very bad social and economic outcomes for women. This is why we have the gender pay gap. And we know that the gender pay gap causes enormous harm to women because they are more likely to retire into and die in poverty than their male counterparts. So, you know, this is really important that we dispel this myth around female and male leadership. It exists as long as we believe it exists, but it's a myth. Okay, should we switch to everyday sexism and get into that a little more? Yeah, absolutely, because I think, you know, these are some of the things that certainly our listeners and our, our members of Lead to Soar share with us a lot about just those tiny, tiny little things that add up every single day and when put together are quite consuming, but in and of themselves on their own are not. They are significant, but they feel like those things, oh, geez, I won't call that out because I think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. Okay, let's hear an example. Well, I heard a great one this week. I was at a, an executive roundtable. I'm on an advisory board for family-friendly workplaces here in Australia. And one of our ambassadors, Dr. David Cook, said, you know, everyday sexism, this is how it plays out. We're all in a meeting room at work. We've all had our morning tea and our cups of tea and coffee and what have you. The meeting finishes. Everyone gets up and walks out. The chairs aren't tucked back in. The plates aren't cleaned up. The cups are left. And guess who walks out? The men. Guess who stay behind to clean up? The women. Or there's an expectation that that will happen. That is very subtle everyday sexism. The expectation that the cleanup or the setup 
or the planning, the, the housekeeping is done by women. And, you know, it, it is subtle because I've got to say, Mel, I am a grab the cups, tuck the chairs in. I hate leaving a room that looks like crap because it's not fair that we expect some magical fairy to come in, more than likely a woman, to do that cleanup. So that that's one example of everyday sexism. So call to action straight away. Pick up your own damn cups, leaders. <laughs> tuck your own damn chair in. Uh, don't expect a woman to clean up after you in the office anywhere actually, but in the office, in the workplace. That's one example of everyday sexism. What about you? I'm having trouble seeing if this is everyday sexism or benevolent bias. Well, no, there's definitely a difference, Mel, because benevolent bias is I want to care for you and I'm making a patriarchal bias decision on your behalf that could be seen as a very caring, well-meaning decision. Sexism is I'm going to treat the women differently and in a very sexist, gendered way than I would treat my male counterparts. So what I might do also is, look, Mel, and in fact, I just did it. I did a woman interrupting then. I'm not a man, but I, you know, man interrupting. Mel, what you need to understand is that blah, 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 blah. Or, <laughs> oh you know, Mel's halfway through a sentence. Blah, 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 I'm just going to talk, 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 talk. Manterrupting, mansplaining, which of course is a patronising way of explaining to a woman how things really work and, and have what she should know. When often the woman is very expert, but we've assumed because she's a woman that she's not expert in her field. <laughs> sure you may have come across a couple of these situations now. I certainly have. I've had men explain to me just what it's like to be a person in sport and on a football board and a board director without even asking me what it is that I do or what my backstory is. I am a two-time football board director. And, you know, there's just an assumption because I'm a woman and, yes, I like football, but I've got no idea. I've been at the highest levels in football (laughs) and, you know, but there's this natural assumption that I'm not going to understand the game or or what happens on boards. Get stuffed. I so do. Don't be patronising to me. Don't mansplain to me about something that I'm expert in because you've assumed because of my gender I'm not. Well, and the crazy thing is, I think, in these situations is they don't even realise in the moment that they're doing it. So you and I were talking about my recent experience. Um, Listeners, you probably know now I am in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a lovely little city. I love living here. And it is a beautiful city. Recently, there was an event series for entrepreneurs and business people and investors, a bunch of events throughout a week called Forward Fest. And I presented about lead to soar and our mission and sort of the research that underlies what we do. And we had Q&A time at the end, which is great. I, I love doing that. And there was a gentleman in the audience who took issue with what I was saying. It was obvious that he was really uncomfortable hearing that women are still struggling to advance in in careers and the reasons behind that. And he completely made up his own statement and said, well, 
women just aren't earning the right degrees to learn this, these business skills so that they have what it takes to advance. And there were several people in the audience who groaned. It was everything for me to not groan and give a coherent response to this person. But oh, that we could all have the confidence of that sort of mediocre white man. I mean, mm. truly. What a proclamation. Hey, women, you're just not studying the right stuff. There's a little bit of evidence that suggests that that's not the case. But anyway, that's a very public display of sexism. And it is everyday sexism because he's made a grossly inaccurate assumption, hasn't checked his facts and also hasn't checked his privilege, I might add. But anyway, but other ways this manifests is, you're so pretty for an engineer, Mel. Uh. Wow, aren't you just lovely? We wouldn't want you to get your little hands dirty, though. And we talked about this at the summit in, in the US, the engineering fields. And do you want to expand on the assumptions that are made about who gets to go on site and who doesn't? There's times when there becomes a bifurcation and distribution of work, right? So you're working on designs, yes, but then once it goes to get actually implemented in the real world, who is the person who gets to go and oversee the construction? And what I have witnessed in the past is there's a decision that gets made without involvement of the junior engineers. They get assigned these tasks. And I have seen situations where it's just assumed that the male of the group will go onto the construction site and do that work. And the women in the group would prefer to stay in the office and work in Excel and run models for their designs or, or whatever. And that is an incredibly huge problem because of how those different tasks are seen within this profession. So within this profession, the person who has been out in the field, been on a construction site, is seen as having done, air quotes, real work. Mm. Even if those two engineers are the same sort of level coming in, they've got the same degrees, they've got the same years of experience. When it comes time for promotion, the person who's more likely to get advocacy for promotion is going to be the one who's done that air quotes, real world work. Yeah. There's the knock on effect. This is the consequence of that everyday sexism. And those are everyday decisions. So leaders listening, please talk to other leaders about these everyday decisions that we're making that can have impacts on women's advancement. And the impacts of these everyday decisions, because guess what? As leaders, as managers, as team leaders of people, of humans, we make hundreds and hundreds of decisions every week. And each one of those decisions quite possibly has a mindset and left unchecked, that mindset is going to have perhaps a sexist lens put over it. Right. This can be, yeah, who gets the assignment on client site versus staying in the office and doing the Excel spreadsheets. Who takes up the most airtime in your team meeting? Who gets to come to the executive leadership team roundtable as a guest speaker and who doesn't? 
whose emails get answered first and whose doesn't? Who do I have the chat in the hallway with about the game on the weekend versus who doesn't? And I've got to say, that's a real example. I do a women in the workplace study for my clients when I'm onboarding them to build their DEI, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion strategy. And, and part of it is saying, let's take a gender lens, of course, an intersectional gender lens, but let's put a gender lens over the organisation. Let's ask women what it's like to work here. What is it like to be a woman in the organisation? And one of these that I did three or four years ago, one of the comments was, and the perfect il illustration of everyday sexism, look, my manager's fantastic, but he will often prioritise talking with the boys about the game on the weekend versus answering my immediate query or my email. And the example given was, I asked my manager to talk about something that was important to getting my work done. He was too busy and said, come and see me later. Five minutes later, I saw him talking in the hallway at length about the football game on the weekend with the coterie of the boys club. And that's an example of everyday sexism. I'd rather talk about the game with the guys that I feel comfortable with than sit down and prioritise a business problem with one of my female leaders. So, you know, this does manifest itself in many ways. So for leaders, again, let's put a gender lens over those everyday decisions. This is not easy, I've got to say, because all of us have a lot of unlearning to do. And going back to the earlier stuff, we've been marinating in societal expectations based on binary gender definitions since we were born. Many of us, particularly people in my age bracket, we have a lot of unlearning to do. I have internalised patriarchy, Mel. I have internalised stuff where I go, ah. We all do, right? Yeah. And I was one of those women that used to say, oh, I'd rather hang out with the guys because, you know, I have so much more fun than and talk about business, blah, 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 than women. And, you know, that's everyday sexism, those kind of comments. So there's a lot of hanging around. And there are many and varied examples. And we could talk for hours about the examples. But the key here is let's recognise those very subtle, everyday things that put women at a disadvantage. Now, I want to also call out that if you're a woman of colour, if you're a disabled woman or a woman from the LGBT community, that is likely to be magnified. So that intersecting layer of barriers. Oh, Michelle, you're so pretty for a lesbian. Really? What am I going to do with that? What? <laughs> so we, we've really got to think about, be much more careful and deliberate about, am I inadvertently disadvantaging a woman here by the thoughts I'm having, the feelings they create, and the actions that result. Okay, this is the last thing I want to say about appearance-based comments. So things like you just said, you're you're so pretty for a lesbian, or oh, you're you're so pretty for an engineer. Even though these things may seem like compliments on the surface, a, a really big problem with what these types of comments do is they take the attention off of the fact that the person that you're speaking about is a professional. They are a professional. And it puts the focus on them as some kind of object to be evaluated. It's objectification. So this is at the root of why these types of comments are problematic. So that's all I have to say about that. Michelle. <laughs> 
I do have one more example, which is a very real one that I've been discussing on social media this week and for some years. And I've got to say PPE, personal protective equipment. There are women who are still wearing cut down male versions of personal protective equipment. It is unsafe. And there are women who are told just to get a smaller size or if they do happen to stumble across a retailer that produces goods for women, everything's pink. So please stop making everything pink for women. I I respect that that pink is a colour and people like it. I don't mind pink, but I don't want to be covered in it. But personal protective equipment, whether you're a healthcare worker, an engineer, a builder, construction, a plumber, whatever it may be, women need to be safe, just the same as men do. So folks, everyday sexism is not paying attention. Are my people dressed in appropriate safety gear. Folks, I do encourage you to engage in the conversation on LinkedIn that I'm having around it. It's fascinating. Yeah, thank you for that add-on. Okay, so what are your final calls to action here for leaders, everyday sexism and benevolent bias? You know what? I'm going to quote one of the amazing male leaders in one of my clients. We had a strategy review session a couple of weeks ago, and he said, His name is Hamish. I'm not going to give the surname or the organisation, but Hamish said, we just need to be very clear that we run a gender lens over every decision that we make. And that's it. That is as simple as it gets. Would I make this decision in the same way for a man as I'm currently doing for a woman? That's it. Please do that. And then I guess that's the bias. And then everyday sexism. Folks, we've, we've talked before about calling it out. Please call out and help people be better, help them unlearn behaviours and help them learn new behaviours. If you're a team leader and the usual suspects are getting all the airtime or whatever it may be, think, okay, this is my job to stop the man interruptions, stop the mansplaining, and I've got to also give women the platforms and the opportunities to be able to shine. So take your role as a an inclusive leader very, very seriously and say, how might I give everyone the opportunity to shine? Please and thank you, leaders. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Mel. That was a good discussion. I feel less, less <laughs> fired up now. All right. Thanks, Michelle. Talk to you all next time. Okay. See you guys. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.